uh, the start of the week and a busy old day on the radio. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. The woman then, she starts hitting and hitting and hitting another man, another bystander. She grabbed his t-shirt and ripped it around his neck. The man didn't respond at all. He didn't know what to do. He looked very shocked, as you would be. How could you not be? How would you describe your skin when it comes to criticism? Is it, is it elephantine or is it uh, wafer thin? It is thinner even than a wafer. It is it is, it is so paper thin that, that it's, it's rather sad in a way to have been writing for so long and to have achieved in a way so much and yet still to be so nervous and so easily offended. How many of them are there here? It's not possible to count them anymore. There are millions of false widows in the country. Oh, uh, great. <laughs> and we'll start on the live line. And Katrina called Joe after a nightmarish incident on the Lewis in Dublin on Saturday night. Myself, my husband and my two kids were on a day out in Dublin. We were coming back from Riverdance and um, we decided our car was at the Red Cow. So okay. we got the Lewis from Jervis back to the Red Cow. When we were standing on the platform, um, there was two young women. Um, and we could hear them coming down from the street. They were shouting. One yeah. one woman, should I say, was shouting verbally abusive, very aggressive um, on the platform on her phone. She was clearly very agitated and very upset. Okay. So we knew, obviously, keep our distance. And we took our children. We didn't let them get too close or anything like that while waiting on the Lewis. So when the Lewis did arrive... Um, we went to the opposite door. They got in one door of, tr- of the tram and we got in the other. From the time we got in to the Lewis, this girl was uh, completely um, aggressive on the phone um, to whoever she was speaking to. So uh, she was just worked up, completely worked up and derailed. Um, and the plight is like just aggressive, completely aggressive. Yeah. So there was a woman sitting down facing her at the time Um and she didn't do anything, a bystander, just sitting, she was looking at her feet. And this young woman um, starts shouting aggressively at her, um, not to be looking at her, verbally aggressive, should I say. Um, the woman didn't respond, she continued to look down at her feet. But um, a, f- a couple of minutes later, um, she again started at this woman. Okay. Um, so, the, so the woman responded and she just said, I'm not doing anything, I'm minding my business, I don't want anything, any harm, I'm minding my business. But for some reason, this young woman just lost it. It's the only way I can explain it. Completely and utterly lost it and got up and went to hit this innocent woman. Her husband was standing beside her and blocked the young woman from hitting the bystanders. Now, I had two children with me at this stage. Mm -hmm. um, A seven-year-old, nearly eight-year-old and a five-year-old. And to be listening to this verbally abusive language and the violence coming from this young woman was appalling. I didn't know what way to look, what way to do. My priority was my kids. And I was I was grateful that I had my husband with me. And I think this woman was very lucky that she had her husband. But um, I, the, the husband of the woman that responded, he, he'd no other option but to block the girl, as you yeah. would. He, he said, I, I, like, stay away from my wife. How dare you go to hit my wife? Mm-hmm. But she got more aggressive, this young woman, more aggressive, more riled up. Um, and was she, was she, was this the attacker? Was she speaking at all? Did she say anything? She, she just was she's screaming and shouting, like, verbally abusive statements on the phone. And then she started screaming and shouting verbally abusive statements at everyone around her. 
Mm-hmm. She was definitely under the influence of something, okay. or if not, she was mentally unstable. Um, I, I don't know, but she, like it was ridiculous what was going on. So that was only the start of the whole situation, Joe. It, it escalated so much worse. Um, my two children um, were sitting down directly across from the woman that it was going on, this, this ordeal was going on. So the man, the woman that was under attack, her husband had his arm out, if I go back to that. Um, I'm just trying to recollect. So he he had his arm out, but the young woman just was getting more aggressive and more aggressive and she started to try punch and box this woman directly in front of her. Um, this and woman, just to remind us, this woman who she, she did not know from Adam. No, did not know from Adam. And where is, where is the second woman that got on the loose with the perpetrator? She was stand, standing beside her. And was she, was she trying to check her or control her or say... No, no. If, if anything, she was making the situation worse because she was saying um, to people, don't you be looking at my friend. How dare you look at my friend? My friend has issues. Um, just escalating the situation. Wasn't trying to calm her friend in any, any, any way or yeah. any manner. So um, another man, it got worse then because a a young man got on the train. Now, Joe, I don't know if this young man knew the girl or not, but from the time he he came on the train, he started um, standing up for the young girl. um, And he started attacking the the gentleman that was trying to protect his wife. Yeah. So, and what what did he say to the man, another totally innocent man who was trying to protect yeah, his, his he, he starts friend saying, or partner? He, said, he started shouting and, the, and getting up into the man's face. Did you touch this girl? Did you go near this girl? Did you touch this girl? I'll kill you. Did you touch this girl? Okay. Um, so the man was very shaken up. And as Katrina was worried for her children, she asked the young woman to stop. I had two small children and yeah. I'd won, I had a seven-year-old boy and... He was shaking, he was petrified, he was crying, he was higging. And I just, I probably should, I, I turned around and I said, can you please stop, there's children on the train, on the tram. Can you please stop, look, there's children, was the words that came out of my mouth. And with that, the young woman came and swung for me and said, I don't okay. care. Um, and in a very aggressive manner, verbally abusive to me, she said, I, I, I don't care what the F um, or who the F is on this train. Um, I'm going to kill anyone that's looking at me. And with that, she launched at me and threw a punch. Mm. But unfortunately, the, the latter end of the the latter end of her hand yeah. hit my son's head and banged his head off the one of the rails. One of the metal. Um, one of the metal poles. One of the metal poles. Um, yes. So, like, I, I was, I was. A, a fear for my life, but like I had two children to protect. Yeah. My husband then um, got very agitated and annoyed, and he jumped up and pushed the same similar situation, pushed the woman back down to her seat and said, oh. "You have to stop. This is not on. There's children here." Yeah, yeah. Um, but that riled up the, the young gentleman that came on, um, and he started attacking my husband. Then um, get off her, leave her alone. How dare you touch her? Um, so I just removed, tried to remove it from the situation. The woman got on the phone, the young woman got on the phone and started ringing people to get down to the next stop that she wanted people killed. Um, that she wanted people killed. So we, I was afraid to leave the tram, Joe. I, I, mm-hmm. like, 
I didn't know who was going to meet us at any station. Um, I didn't know what to do. The girls started shouting then, who, who, who's after trying to strangle me? Who's after trying to strangle me? I'm going to kill them. I'm going to kill them. Um, we didn't know what to do, where to look. Like We were in a situation that I'd never been put in before. Of course. Now, when, um, when your husband propelled the woman in the fence, propelled her back into her yeah, seat, what did she do then? Oh, she really got riled up. She. This is why I think she was under the influence because next, like her eyes were just literally lit up. There was white froth, I'd say, coming from her mouth. Like she went berserk. She started screaming at everyone, "Get out of my way! I'm going to f and kill him." Um, and there's no, there's no escape on a moving Lewis unless you move no, down back, try and get back it. down. And that's, and that's, that's exactly what we did, Joe. We, um, in fairness to people, we we wanted to get our kids out of the way, out of that situation, and like there was nowhere we could go, only down the tram. The woman then was so derailed that she started hitting and hitting and hitting another man, another bystander, who had nothing got to do with any of the situation. She grabbed his t-shirt and ripped it around his neck. Oh, yeah. Um, the man didn't respond at all. He um. He 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 didn't know what to do. He looked very shocked, as you would be. How could you not be? Um, so do you no know if anyone? Didn't. You know the the, the, the Lewis say, "Oh, there's a text line you can text now if you're." I I know that now, Joe, and I know that from looking at the website now, and when I try to get in contact with them, but I didn't know it at the time, Joe. Yeah. And when you're trying to mind two small children that are absolutely terrified for their life. And someone's screaming at you that they're going to kill you and get people down here to kill you. Like, I was in no position to take out my phone and start texting people. Yeah, of course. And when, um, when, when, when you moved, did she follow you? Yeah, so that's, this is, yeah. She, she tried to follow us. She was following us and barging through people, swinging at people. Um, and then when she did eventually get down to us, what I feel was the most degrading act of all, she spat at my husband, spat at my children and spat at myself three times. Holy God. Yeah. I can't it was That's Katrina on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on Morning Ireland, scoliosis operations cancelled for children in desperate need for surgery. Scoliosis operations for children which were meant to take place over the next three weeks at Temple Street Hospital in Dublin have been cancelled. It's understood there are 32 children affected by the cancellations. One of them is seven-year-old Brianna Phelan-Summers from County Kilkenny. She and her mother Katrina spoke to our reporter Ashlyn Kenny. It's very difficult. She's finding it hard to push her wheelchair now. She's getting pains in her shoulders. She's usually an outgoing child. She wants to go to bed. She's tired all the time. Doesn't want to visit her family anymore. It's very upsetting. It's okay. She needs this operation to be done for her to get back on life, her life track. I have pain. On my in my uh, back and in my back. Yeah. Every day when I go to bed. 
a pain in her back every day when she goes to bed. That's little Brianna Phelan Summers, just seven years old, one of the children affected by a cancellation in her scoliosis appointment at Temple Street Hospital in Dublin. Well, we can talk now to Julia Hearn, who is Director of Legal Policy and Services for the Children's Rights Alliance. Julie, listening there to that little girl and her mum, um, what are your thoughts this morning on this decision to cancel these operations? Good morning. We'd be deeply concerned to hear about the cancellation of these operations. And as you hear from Brianna and her mum, the impact on of, the, of this cancellation on them is huge. And we know that for children and young people who need this complex surgery, any delay is crucial. Children's Health Ireland, who run the hospitals, they say that the operations had to be cancelled because of workload pressures for hospital services and staff. What do you understand that to mean? But I mean, it's hard to know what exactly that means. I think we need to we need to hear more about the reason for this delay. And, you know, we are we are hearing it's a workforce issue. But again, we're not really sure of what exactly what type of workforce issue it is and how it's going to be resolved. And I think what we really need to hear now is from Temple Street and the minister for the reasons behind this delay and more importantly, what's going to be done about it. Because we do know from international research that the delays in surgery for children with scoliosis can lead to an increased operating time, increased chance of complications, delayed post-operative return to school and an increase in surgical complexity. And I suppose not only that, but these families are being left in limbo and it can have long term effects on their development, but also on their mental health and on their well-being and their ability to go to school, to make friends and on their daily lives. And uh, you don't know the answer to this, but I mean, f- for the, from their perspective, they, they will want to know when these appointments will be rescheduled and they are potentially facing another long wait. They are. And, you know, we've heard from children, and young people in this position before the impact of that delay and what it has on the child on their daily lives. But on but. Government does have an obligation to, I suppose, to tell these families what is happening, when they're going to get their surgery, how long they're going to have to wait and what the plan is to make sure that it happens as soon as possible. They've already been through enough without having to go through, I suppose, this uncertainty once more. Yeah, but I mean, what what else can they do? They, they, they were scheduled, the, the appointment's been cancelled, they have to wait again. They have rights under a UN convention for medical treatment, but... That's of little use to them in this circumstance, isn't it? It, it, I mean, the government is obligated under international human rights law to ensure that there are functioning children's health facilities, sufficient hospitals, healthcare workers, that they can provide healthcare to all children within the state. And for children, young people who are waiting, you know, as you say, having this right is one thing, but not seeing it fulfilled is incredibly difficult. And I suppose what really we need to see now is the government to look at what is happening in terms of children's healthcare in this situation, but also more broadly, because we know one of the biggest challenges for children's healthcare at the moment is the long waiting list access treatment. And really what we need to see is government looking at their policies, looking at their plans, looking at their services to make sure that they can actually be delivered to children in a way that complies with their rights and make sure that they get the healthcare treatment they need as soon as possible. Julia Hearn, Director of Legal Policy and Services for the Children's Rights Alliance on Morning Ireland. Then later on Today with Claire Byrne, Brian O'Connell was looking at the issue and revisiting the Terry family in Cork. Their situation made national headlines after the suffering of young Adam Terry experienced while waiting for his surgery came to light. 
Well, it's been a tough road for him, but um delighted to say he's returning to school on Wednesday this week, which is fantastic news. So notwithstanding the progress Adam has made, the news that Temple Street are to pause these complex surgeries like the one that Adam got, it left his mom Christine feeling angry and let down because of the assurances she had been given when she spoke out on this issue. I'm I'm just flabbergasted. I saw the news tonight, the six o'clock news beautiful little Brianna it's just absolutely heartbreaking you know there are no words Brian and yeah I immediately started thinking you know weren't we promised 19 million and huge changes back in February of this year it's now August I'll be honest with you I don't really see much changing the list is growing all the time and now this there was a sense wasn't there that because there have been promises in 2017 that this time it was different I really felt that too. We really did. As hard and all as it was to come out and talk and tell our stories, we felt that we were really helping to bring change. Is the issue here that government can sort of throw as much money at this as they like, but Mm -hmm. you can't magic a specialised surgeon overnight? That's exactly it. Everybody wants change, but something is really wrong. You know, they were to get more theatre time, they were to get more MRIs. Um, But here we are yet again, and it's the same message back. Children who are very complex, they're the ones that are getting their surgeries cancelled. I also asked Christine Terry how Adam was getting on post-surgery and how she felt hearing the news from Temple Street, considering the promises that were made to her and to many other families. He's doing okay. He's doing all right, yeah. It's been... The hardest year to date, yeah. He got sepsis eight weeks post-op. That was very hard. And we spent all of Christmas and New Year's in the hospital. And yeah, that was really difficult on all of us. And especially Adam. And uh, But I'm really happy to say that he is now sepsis-free. It, it doesn't do any of us any good to look back. On T-shirt, Michal Martin phoned you. The Minister for Health phoned you. Yeah. Paul Reid apologised. Mm-hmm. So how do you feel now six months on? Because all these promises were made and here we are now with families left with a huge question mark over when surgeries can take place. I'm just so cross, Brian. I'm so cross on their behalf. Um, it just doesn't make any sense, any of it. On an optimistic note, yeah. you've been sending me clips of Adam sailing over the last <laughs> few months. Yeah. And I've just met him and he is he looks completely transformed to me. Yeah, he looks like an eleven year old little boy now, doesn't he? Yeah. Now, do you think we're at the point where we need a task force to deal with this? I feel like government have really tried to bring change on this. I've spoke with Michal Martin, I've spoke with Stephen Donnelly. They both don't want this situation to be happening. And and just like the people before them. But at the end of the day, Brian, we're here and it's still going on and it's still being allowed to happen. We really need to sit back down at the drawing table and look at whatever they need. I think you're right in that they need another consultant. Absolutely. You know, they need more um, theatre time. They obviously need the, the, nur- the nursing thing is a huge thing as well. Something is, is definitely structurally wrong from within the minister and the Taoiseach need to look at that, see what is the problem. And we need to finally bring change and fix that and make sure it goes ahead. Christine Terry talking to Brian O'Connell from Today with Claire Byrne. Then on the news at one, Brian Dobson spoke to Professor Adrian Foran 
from Children's Health Ireland. Now, scoliosis operations for a number of children which were scheduled to take place over the next three weeks at Temple Street Hospital in Dublin have been postponed pending a review. Professor Adrienne Foran uh, joins us now from uh, CHI Temple Street. Professor Foran, thank you for taking our, our call um, this afternoon. C- can we just at the outset be clear that the number of children affected by by this decision and when it's expected they will get their surgery. Uh, thank you, Brian. Yes, I mean, we're obviously very sorry that this has happened. It's not a decision that we made lightly. Um, you may be aware since April we've had a targeted approach to try and tackle the long waiting list of children with scoliosis across all of CHI. And this particular cohort of very complex cases so to put it into context, this time last year we would have done one complex spine a month in Temple Street. Since April we've been working really hard to do one a week. But the knock-on effect of this has been that some of these children need to go back to theatre three, four, five times. Mm-hmm. They stay in hospital for a very long time. And obviously that has impacts for complex care, for the rehab team, for theatre, for ICU. And so we have to make the difficult decision with the clinicians involved, the admissions team ourselves, anaesthesia, management across the board, just to look at our current inpatient mix of these children and how we plan going into the winter. So it was a very difficult decision. It is just for the next three weeks. And then we will work with the clinicians involved and plan how we reschedule these children. It's purely a capacity issue. It comes down to infrastructure and availability of personnel and just trying to get that balance right. And just to say that obviously we're, we, you know, we want to fix it for these families, but spinal surgeries across the board are still going on and we're way ahead of where we were this time last year or previous year. So there's a huge amount of work going on to operate on these yeah. children who've been on waiting. List. So there's over, over three weeks then, so that's a child each week. It's, it's three children. Three children and, of course, their families and all the work that went into prepping them for this. And are, so, have they been told when they will now have the procedure? Well, this is what we're trying to work out. So, no, that we haven't because we don't want to overpromise. We obviously want to get them done this year. But mm. what we need to do now over the next week or two, what we're reviewing is our capacity for each one of them. And what's very difficult to predict, Brian, obviously I'm a clinician as well myself, mm. is that... Some of the scoliosis surgery can take place in CAPA. Some can take place in hospitals. You know, and we would say, okay, you have a length of stay of three to five days on average, and you can plan that. Some of these children are in Temple Street for 100 days, 180 mm. days, and that's where it becomes difficult. One might go back to surgery once. One child had to go back to surgery 20 times, and it's until they're operated on, and some of these surgeries take eight, yeah. 12 hours. It's very hard to know that. And but as of now, so as of now, you can't give these these children, these families. No, uh, sadly, a day, we can't. You can't in even the next say seven to ten days. We will be able to do that. We just and you hope we, you hope that it might be this year, but you you can't even be sure of that. For these three, but oh no, we would do everything to make sure that happens. Right. Like if you think our capacity and was one of these cases a month, and we've been doing one a week, bar people being on leave since yeah. April. So that's built then, up. If they, if they are given a, a new date in, for example, October or, or November, does that mean that the child who's scheduled to have the procedure that particular week is in turn deferred? In other words, is there a knock-on effect from this? There will be a knock-on effect, and that's what we're trying to plan. We worked mm. so hard. Like, it was all shoulders to the wheel when we got this extra funding and this extra support. And you're working with the clinical team 
that really want this to happen. Mm. Nurses, doctors, surgeons, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, but they have a capacity as well for managing. So if one child comes in and stays for weeks, that's fine. If they come in and stay for 10 weeks, we have to, once that child is operated on, we obviously have to prioritise their rehabilitation, their recovery. Mm -hmm, And then that does, because they have to keep coming back to theatre. And we just don't have that capacity at this moment in time. Mm. Final surgery has happened so, in Temple Street today as we speak. So it's Just, three, it's, I mean, it's, it's, three, it's three families in this case. Yes. It could be another three families next month or the month after that. Well, that's what we're trying to plan. So we wouldn't list, we wouldn't list a child. We'd only list six weeks in advance. Okay. We wouldn't, so we are going to work really closely to try and schedule them in a more realistic time frame. But again, with the understanding that A, you're heading into winter, which is always difficult. B, Mm. unfortunately, because of the complexity of these children and their intercurrent medical needs, they have to be done in Temple Street, where we have the complex anesthesiology and the ICU. They can't be done in Kappa or Black Walk or somewhere else. They have to be done where you have all that available. So it's just a whole knock-on effect, and we, we want to plan it properly so that we can schedule families over the winter with realistic expectations mm-hmm. so that, we, we, that we're not cancelling at short notice. And overall, how many children are waiting for, for spinal procedures at Temple Street? As of today, 31, and 13 of them are in this complex cohort. But across the whole group, just to put it into context, given the backlog from COVID and cyber and everything else that's happened over the past three years, in CHI as a group with the added capacity we have in Kappa. So between Temple Street, Crumlin and Kappa, mm. we have done 329 spinal surgeries to date, which is a huge, phenomenal amount of work. Um, so like people have worked really hard. It's not that anybody wants to be in this position, but this but was just with the conditions staffing. as well. We all agreed it just yeah. wasn't safe at the moment to bring mm. in another complex child until we have a bit more capacity to do that properly and mm. safely. Okay, well, look, we'll we leave it there. Professor Adrian Foran from... And Tem- again, we're very sorry. Yes. Okay, well, I mean, I think some of us would have heard uh, little Brianna feeling, feeling talking this morning about, you know, how she goes to bed at night with a, a pain in her head and a pain in her back, and your heart would go out to her and her family. Absolutely, mm-hmm. but we want to bring her in when it's safe to do so and do it properly. Okay. Professor Foran, thanks very much indeed for talking Thanks, us. Brian, thank you. Professor Adrian Foran talking to Brian Dobson on the News at One. Ah, spider season when arachnophobes like me need all the reassurances that they're really all very harmless. Then along comes Dr. Michel Dugan of the scary sounding Venom Lab at the NUI Galway. On today with Claire Byrne. New research conducted by scientists at NUI Galway has found that invasive false widow spiders are up to 230 times more poisonous than domestic Irish species. Here to tell me more is Dr. Michel Dugan of the Venom Lab at NUI Galway. Good morning to you, Dr. Dugan. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I'm conscious that I might have scared some people by saying they're 230 times more poisonous than domestic Irish species, but they're not going to kill humans, are they? No, 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 they wouldn't kill humans. Uh, we we already know that, yes, in certain instances they can so bite people, that it's not fun, that it's a bit similar to a wasp sting um, and that uh, people can experience pain and a few symptoms for a little while, but they, they, they won't kill people. But you have studied this false widow spider now for five years or so. Were you surprised at how poisonous it is? Yes, to an extent. We already 
studied the composition of its venom um, in the previous couple of years, and we knew that it produced, so that the false widow produced toxins that are very similar to the true black widow, just not in the same quantity. But we were not expecting such a massive difference in terms of, of venom strength between native species and the false widow. And of course, that extreme potency of its venom compared to native species means that it is incredibly good at competing with native spiders. And you have watched it in a battle scenario with native species. How does it behave? What does it do? Well, the novel false widow has a few techniques actually uh, that it employs so, uh, in order to catch uh, other animals and particularly other spiders. It can um, project its silk, so use its back legs to actually project its, its silk and then kind of cage the, its opponents and then bite it and inject venom into it. Uh, in some other cases, we know that if it doesn't have much venom, it will actually avoid confrontation and will come for confrontation later once it has more venom available. So the noble false widow will adapt its behavior to the amount of venom it has available and the likely scenario that it will be. If it's a big opponent and it doesn't have much venom, it will move away, it will retreat and wait to have more venom or better circumstances to take it down. But he's spiteful. He'll come back when he has enough venom to get the thing that he wants to kill. Ah, well, if there is competition for particular resources, so space, so food, yes, of course, they, they, they will. They're all competing against each other to have the best spots, uh, you know, and have the better access to food. So the better, the better and stronger one usually is the one that prevails at the end. What does it kill? Is it mostly just other spiders? So, no, the noble false widow is what we call a generalist feeder. So because of the profile of its venom, it can take down a large variety of prey. And that includes most bugs that you would find uh, in Ireland, including most type of spiders. And then occasionally we have seen them also so feeding on uh, lizards. We have seen them feeding on a bat. We have recently found one feeding on a shrew, so on a rodent. So they're capable of taking down pretty large prey compared to their own size. Mm-hmm. How many of them are there here? It's not possible to count them anymore. There are millions of false widows in the country. Oh, um, great. <laughs> they've, <laughs> they've arrived about 25 years ago or so, and uh, they are incredibly successful so at establishing new colonies. It's not just in Ireland. Uh, they have invaded, of course, the UK, but also uh, all of Western Europe, parts of the Middle East, parts of California. We also have now colonies on the Pacific coast of South America. So it's really kind of, of a a species that is taking the world over and we really need to understand its impact because because it can actually have a very strong impact on on native species especially on islands like in islands where where the ecosystems tend to be fragile yes and if we see or think that we have a false widow spider in our house should we be trying to get rid of it or do we leave it alone what do we do so the best thing would actually to just use the good old method of the, the, the cup and the piece of paper, put a, a, a cup on top of it, uh, put a piece of paper behind it and just throw it outside. The worst thing that can be done is actually to just um, go you know, around with an insecticide spray and spray the whole house because in that case you will actually destroy all 
native species as well. And at the end of the day, they are still the best defense, the best barrier we have against um, further invasion by, by, by um, alien species, so by invasive species. So we, we really should just try and move them out of the house and that's it. Okay. Anything else would actually be more negative. Because from what you've said, our native species can't defend themselves against this false widow spider. So we shouldn't help our native species along by, you know, squashing the odd one or two of them? Well, um, the problem is actually to make sure that it is really a false widow that you're squashing and not a native spider. Um, and that's that's the whole problem. It, it would be a shame if now, you know, um, people were just really scared and, and started to go on a rampage against native spiders as well. We They are extremely important to the ecosystem. They are the main contributor to destroying mosquitoes, flies, midges, and we do really need them. Yep, that's Dr. Michel Dugan from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, murder mysteries, social media critics and British politics when Ryan met writer Anthony Horowitz for a catch-up. Anthony Horowitz, good morning. Good morning to you, Ryan. How are you today? It's always good to talk to you. Thanks for being with us. It's a real pleasure. I'm not on a boat this time. I'm sitting in a hotel room <laughs> with excellent internet. <laughs> Thank God for that. Uh, so many places to go, Anthony. So many things to talk about. So let's get down to business. For starters, congratulations on the twist of a knife. Uh, the latest instalment of the Hawthorne and Horowitz uh, series, which I gobbled up in uh, a few sittings uh, because it's great fun. Um, let's get down to the business of the, the, the blurb, if you will, the nutshell story, and we'll take it from there with your permission. Certainly. Well, the, the, the fourth book in the Hawthorne series starts with me splitting up with Hawthorne. I never want to work with him again because he's so difficult. This is a private detective who has forced me to write books about him. Uh, I'm actually uh, busy in London because of the opening of a play of mine, Mind Game, which gets a terrible review from a critic called Harriet Throsby. Mm-hmm. And the next day, Harriet Throsby is found murdered. There is a knife in her chest. The knife belongs to me. It has my fingerprints on it. A hair from my head is on her coat. And the only person who can stop me being arrested for murder is Hawthorne, but we're not talking. Okay. I think your relationship with Hawthorne is delicious because he simply doesn't respect you. Well, he isn't very nice to me, I must say. First of all, I have to say that I don't respect a lot of his views. I mean, he has some quite unpleasant sort of political, sociological views, which I differ with very strongly. He doesn't treat me very well, but the worst thing, as you know, Ryan, is he calls me Tony, which really does get under my skin, and I can't stop him doing it. I love that. And you're the opening night of the play. He couldn't be bothered going. I mean, of course not. Well, well, actually, it does turn out that he um, he has secretly gone to it. Yes. Um, that's the thing about Hawthorne. In this book, it does reveal that there is a slightly warmer and kinder side to him lingering behind that mask. And I do get a glimpse of it, particularly when I happen to spend the night being chased by the police in Australia, a fugitive for justice. I end up holding his um, flat in London. And I do discover a few things about him which make him seem perhaps to be a slightly warmer person than I thought. OK, OK. I suppose I should clarify by saying that he suggests to you at the beginning of the book that he couldn't be bothered going on as part of he his... He does tell me that, though. He, he, is very, he is extremely mean to me, just as he tells me that his son has never read any of my books. When <laughs> I end up in the son's bedroom, there they all, all are on the shelf. So he's playing yeah. games with me in his own way. OK, well, again, it's a beautifully studied relationship and, and the book is a riot uh, from beginning to end. I always love your stuff, as you know. So let's talk a little bit about um, the world 
you inhabit in the book, um, the blurring of the lines in Planet Horowitz versus, you know, Planet Hawthorne and, and the whole series, generally speaking. Um, let's talk about critics and reviewers. Um, do you have a love-hate relationship with them? Do you respect them? Are you sceptical of them? Well, I sometimes think I sometimes think they have a hate-hate relationship with me. But no, I I have great respect for critics. In fact, before I um I started writing the book, I went and had lunch with a very very well-known critic. I acknowledge him in the back, and you know he really did tell me a great deal about the world, the artistry, if you like, of being a critic. And I've you know I'm not going to pretend that I enjoy reading bad reviews of my work. Nobody does. And then, and of course, there's the old truism that you you forget all the good reviews. It's just the one bad review that lingers in the mind. But this book was never intended to be some kind of cry of revenge against the critics, even though when my last play came out, um, they were uh, generally not too kind. But that goes with the job. And if you fear critics, I, I say this in schools when I, when I talk to kids, if you, if you fear failure, you will never completely succeed. If you fear critics, you're going to, you're going to circumscribe and, and, and damage your own work. And with that in mind, um, how would you describe your skin when it comes to criticism? Is it, is it elephantine or is it uh, wafer thin? It is thinner even than a wafer. It is it is it is so paper thin that, that it's it's rather sad in a way to have been writing for so long and to have achieved in a way so much and yet still to be so nervous and so easily offended. Um, I can't explain it to you. I think maybe it's because I write children's books as well as adult books, but the child in me is still very much alive and can be very easily hurt. But but I do find it difficult uh, when people criticise my work and you know it doesn't necessarily even have to be a, a critic in a newspaper or, or online. It can be you know it can be a friend, uh, uh, an associate, anybody. It's I am thin-skinned. But then, you know, the other side of that is that I, you know, I work incredibly hard. I have a lot of belief in what I do. Mm. And I'm nervous of, you know, the, the needle that comes along and pricks the balloon, as it were. Um, and, and so, generally speaking, I only now look at the reviews that are sent to me by, by my publishers because I know that they'll only send me the good ones. And Ryan asked Anthony about the new world of social media critics. I mean, it is true that in the old days, people who didn't like my work would throw a sponge brick at the television and sit there frothing. Now they can go on the internet and say whatever they like. And one of the things that I dislike about the internet, as much as I think it has revolutionised our lives and made things so much easier for me, I'm now an expert on any subject in the world, have a touch of a button, which of course really helps me when I'm writing. But that said, it does allow for a sort of an unthinking cruelty often to come out. For the internet, social media is so binary, it's, it's either something is wonderful or it's terrible. It's good or it's bad. It's right or it's wrong. What the internet is not very good at doing is exploring the areas in between. You, you've talked about recently a three-second delay in your mind. <laughs> I, yes, I've had to have it medically implanted because uh, too often my mouth has let me down. And that is something else that I, I'm very aware of these days, that with 24-hour news and with news being so competitive, I think every media outlet is searching for a headline. And so if I'm talking at a literary festival, for example, and there may be 500 people in the room and somebody asks me a question which I'm hearing for the first time and I have to come up with an immediate answer, it is all too easy nowadays to express a trigger word, a trigger phrase, a trigger attitude, which will have a very unfortunate and, and, and even an unpleasant effect, you know, the Twitter storm or, or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, so, so yes, I have now had to, as it were, install a three-second delay mechanism just to test what I'm about to say and make sure that it doesn't offend. I live in a society which is, unfortunately, very, very quick and easy to take offence. No question about that. And, and equally, you'll see that after your appearance at whatever festival it might be, and with the headline, which could be 
clickbait to get into what Anthony Horowitz did or didn't say about certain things. Uh, and you'll find there accompanied by the article, maybe three random tweets from people who kind of hate you. Well, that, you know, people do. T- I look sometimes at the Internet. I mean, you know, I have a Twitter account and incidentally, I, I love it because it allows me very, very fast access with my readers. And, you know, even last week I was up in Edinburgh Festival and I met two or three people from Twitter who had said, you know, we, we'd exchange messages and there they were in real life getting books signed. And it was really, really pleasant. But that said, people on the Internet do take a view of me sometimes, which is simply miles away from who I am to anybody who knows me. It's ridiculous. But I think it's very, very easy if you're sitting in a room alone with a newspaper headline and a computer screen to to come up with an image of somebody, whether it's a writer or, for that matter, a politician or, or, or a broadcaster, uh, and and decide that they are sort of a demon. And and nothing can be further from the truth. Unfortunately, that's another aspect of social media. The, the lies are often um, backed up and emphasised. You find people who agree with you. If, you. if you think the world is flat, you can go online and find thousands of people who say, yes, it definitely is. Yes, and uh, I was only talking to the Irish writer Donald Ryan about this the other day, about how somebody might take to a keyboard to try to crush your soul. And you can meet the same person out and about and have what I'm... uh, a great uh, fan of, which is called civil discourse. Well, you know, civil discourse, which you know, I increasingly find these days, you know, on the radio as much as anywhere else, and in, in, in sort of, you know, in, in in discussion shows where you have the time and the leisure to actually pick apart what you're talking about, rather than the sort of yes/no sort of yes. anger that, that one gets on social media. Um, it's something that that I miss in daily life, and I think that to a certain extent, you know, politicians are to blame. Parliament is such a sort of an ugly place. The language they're used is so unpleasant, and I think even in the media too, you know, we now use swear words a lot, albeit with asterisks in them, and hate language of one sort or another is very quickly reported. I think all of us need to hold our breath and put in that three-second delay, mm. if you like, and actually look at what we're saying to each other and how we're saying to it. Because you're right, Ryan, there is nothing nicer in the world than, for example, I mean, it happened to me yesterday, driving down a narrow lane, and, and a, a driver, I back out of the way to allow another driver to pass, that driver smiles and waves, and mm. I smile and wave back. And in that tiny, tiny human interaction, I'm reminded that actually, at heart, we're all decent. We all want to get on with each other. And with the sort of the, 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 the bigger arguments and the shouting matches that we see being aired publicly all over the place are the exception, really, not the rule, that, that at heart we are all decent. And Ryan asked Anthony about attitudes to writing for different audiences. Do children's books get the same amount of scrutiny when it comes to what should or shouldn't be written? Or is that the preserve of adult writers only? Books. Well, if you think I'm sounding nervous, you should talk to my publishers. I mean, <laughs> I think children's book publishers now live in, in great fear really? of, of, of backlash. I've, I've had this all the time. The last book I wrote for my publishers came back to me with a manuscript absolutely covered in red ink. I felt like sort of going to the bottom of the class because I seem to have made so many mistakes in trying to understand the sort of the psyche of a 21st century kid. I don't believe that psyche incidentally necessarily exists. It's, it's a false creation. This fear has led us now to sort of to back away from almost anything. It's, you know, the famous example was Sebastian Fawkes, an adult writer, of course, who said that he was nervous even about describing women in his books. Because that isn't because he can't describe a woman or isn't clever enough to to find the correct language that is, you know, which is broadly speaking inoffensive, but nonetheless personal. But but the fact that that fear exists drives a, a one writer like that into a corner. There was another writer, again, giving a speech last week about sort of, you know, having, again, to always draw a breath and always having to be nervous about what he was going to write. Uh, I think that was Howard Jacobson saying, I, I can't remember now, but it was an article I read. And, and 
I think that is how we now live. And I, and one thing I will say is that I think that is, is disastrous. Writers, and I've said this before, should be leading the agenda. They shouldn't be cowed by it. But that is where we are now. I think that pendulum will change and swing mm, back. Mm. And not all of it, incidentally, is bad. I have to say I am not anti-woke. I'm not anti um, the idea that we need to be careful and, re and even reverential about other people's feelings. Um, all I'm saying is, is that it's the backlash that we need to be wary of, the people that we should still retain the right to offend if we so wish to do without losing our livelihood, our jobs, our safety and all the rest of it. Let us not forget that we live in the shadow of one of, the, of, of this appalling attack on Sir Salman Rushdie. And that, although it is not connected to work, obviously it is not connected to, 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 um, to, to the issues we've been discussing today, it is nonetheless the extreme manifestation of this atmosphere of hate. And, and we, all of us, need to back away from it. No, it's an attack on free speech. It's attack, an it was attack an attack on many things. I mean, I suspect yeah. the person who attacked Sir Salman had not read his book. Um, I, I might be wrong about that. I mean, it was just a simply, it was, it was a, an extreme manifestation of violence, violence in language, violence in attitude, violence in social media. And here it was, violence in real life and on the stage. And, and you know, one does unfortunately lead to the other, which is why when we debate with each other and, and have discourse, we need to smile and be friends. Don't that sound very simplistic, but I think it's true. I think simplicity is uh, required because it, it, the fog of culture war is so intense these days that a little bit of kindness, where that's um, waving at somebody passing by in the car or saying um, thank you to the person in the shop is probably going to go further as a currency than it ever did before. And, but let us not forget, that, as we both agree, that is how the majority of people behave. We cannot allow a tiny minority of violent voices to disrupt the sort of the joy and harmony of everyday life. Yes, here, yes, here. And um, we spoke briefly about one of your sons who's been very busy as a special advisor to Rishi Sunak. Little did we know at that time that we'd be uh, end up talking. Here we are now at the end of August and... Uh, uh, Mr. Sunak and Liz Trust are battling head to head for the leadership of the not only the Tory party, but also the prime ministership of your country, which will ultimately be chosen by what, about 50,000 people. Is that, is that correct? I think it's about 150,000 people. I think me, it adds up to something like, is it 0.3% of the population? And if there is one thing we learn from this battle is that it cannot ever happen again. How can a mature democracy in the 21st century allow 150,000 invisible people uh, to, to cast votes for reasons that we don't even know and, and allow the two candidates to have to go head to head in such a sort of an appalling way to appeal to this, to this minority? And as you, you may have heard that a, 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 a political broadcaster uh, a couple of weeks ago actually joined the, the party and, and put in three candidates, one of whom was a tortoise. And it makes you think to yourself, you know, these people have not been in any way identified, regulated, or even uh, have even come into the discussion. So, so the future of this country is being dictated by an invisible miniature minority. That can't happen again. And it also really saddens me that that. I would obviously say this, right, given the, my, my son's involvement in it, but that Rishi Sunak does seem to me to be so much more of a serious politician of the two. And dare I say it, even the more, I mean, I, he seems to have a, a greater grip of the, the, the troubles that we have. I mean, any prime minister coming into power in the next um, few weeks is faced with a perfect storm of difficulties and will require enormous strength and, and honesty and a fantastic team around him or her to, to um, to combat it. And and what we're seeing in this contest is 
none of the above. We're just seeing a sort of a, an ugly slanging match and, and uh, a result that seems a foregone conclusion and to my mind is the wrong result. Anthony Horowitz from The Ryan Tuberty Show. And on today with Claire Byrne, Irish ambassador to the US and formerly to the UK and Malaysia, Daniel Mulhall was talking about his retirement. You experienced Washington both during the the Trump and the Biden administrations. Looking back on it now, what was the the big difference between the two? Well, of course, the big difference um, for me at least was that um, the Trump administration had a sort of an adversarial attitude towards the European Union, not towards Ireland. They were quite uh, positive about Northern Ireland and they were trying to be helpful in that regard, but they were quite negative about uh, the European Union and therefore we kind of got dragged into some of those situations. And so would you say that people in the Trump camp when it came to Brexit were supportive of the notion of Brexit and did that create difficulties? Yes, they were supportive of Brexit, but they also recognised the complications that would arise on the island of Ireland. And they were also supportive of the retention of an open border on the island of Ireland. So from that point of view, I don't have anything critical to say about their um, their approach to Ireland. They were they, they were quite reasonable with us. They, they always recognised they were in favour of Brexit, but they didn't want to see Brexit damage the cause of peace in Northern mm-hmm. Ireland because that cause is a bipartisan-supported um, issue in America. Therefore, there's no percentage for any party to try and, uh, you know, take a position that would jeopardise the peace in Ireland in any way. And there were a couple of Irish-American allies in the Trump administration too, who I, I assume you were, you were friendly with and could work with. Yes, I had three in particular, uh, Mick Mulvaney, who became the chief of staff uh, to... President Trump, um, Robert O'Brien, who became his national security advisor, and then Kevin Hassett, his economic advisor. And I was able to talk to all three of those um, quite a lot, and they were helpful to us in uh, you know, assuring us that our point of view was being taken on board in the White House and elsewhere in the administration. So that was all very positive. But of course, it's not restricted to people uh, like that, because there were others also in the administration that I dealt with who had no Irish connections, but were willing to listen to uh, our arguments, for example, people in the um, United States Trade Representative's Office who were dealing with trade issues. And at one stage, we got hit by tariffs uh, on our butter and our cream liqueurs. I could talk to them, regardless of whether they were Irish or Irish-American or not. Of course. And then uh, Joe Biden comes along and I assume the water became significantly warmer. Yes, well, I mean, it's not a partisan thing to say, but naturally you have to have your heart warmed by a president who describes himself as having an Irish background, is proud of his Irish heritage, uh, quotes Irish poetry on a regular basis and has for 40 years been a supporter of uh, the cause of peace in Northern Ireland. So uh, one of the highlights of my time in Washington was attending the inauguration of Joe Biden because to see someone like that, which is a strong Irish heritage, becoming US president was quite a highlight of my time in the United States. And when it comes to the Good Friday Agreement, he's deeply committed to that process, isn't he? Yes, because in, uh, in t- last year, um, we, were, we marked the 40th anniversary of the Congressional Friends of Ireland. And I did some research and I came up with the, with the original statement issued when that Friends group was launched. And one of the signatories was a man called Senator Joseph R. Biden, from Delaware. So from the very beginning of the congressional involvement and engagement with the cause of peace in Northern Ireland, 
um, no President Biden was involved, was a supporter of peace in Ireland. Of course, we have to be careful here about, you know, saying or, or you know, relying on the fact that Joe Biden has his uh, Irish roots and will always be solely on our side. That administration has a very strong relationship, Daniel, with the UK too, which it has to foster in mind. Absolutely. I mean, and I would never, I would never doubt that. I would never challenge that. I mean, the, the, every every US administration has a strong relationship with a whole range of countries, and the UK is always a very strong partner of the United States, regardless of the political complexion of the president or the uh, British prime minister. No. It's not a case of us trying to do down uh, Britain in the United States. No, it's simply a case of us putting forward our own point of view and ensuring that the American administration, be it Republican or Democrat, uh, understands fully the perspective that we bring to bear to the situation in Northern Ireland. And frankly, I have to say that over the years, going back decades, we've always managed to have a good relationship, a good rapport with administrations in Washington. And that was the case both with the Trump administration and now with the Biden administration, because we've been able to put across our particular point of view. It's not a case of us criticizing or trying to do down the British. It's simply a case of making sure that the Americans understand the important role that they can play in bringing and helping to preserve the peace we enjoy in Northern Ireland. And Claire asked Daniel about being the ambassador to the UK during the Brexit referendum. Rolling back then a few years to when you were ambassador to the UK, that was across the Brexit moment, which it feels like we're still in and we're awaiting the results of of the Tory leadership (laughs) contest at the moment. Have you a view on, you know, the expected outcome is that Liz Truss will win and become the next Tory leader and the next British Prime Minister. How do you think that her elevation will affect the British-Irish relationship? Well, I don't, I don't have a view on, on who's going to win. We'll see that in a week's time or so. But what I would say is that every Prime Minister, once elected, has an opportunity to cut their own cloth and to, to try to make their own weather. And I think there's an opportunity for a fresh start in the relationship between the UK and the European Union. And I hope that the new Prime Minister, whoever it may be, takes advantage of that fresh start opportunity and moves forward to try to find a pragmatic solution to the issues surrounding the protocol, because I believe a solution of that nature is certainly available and it's within reach. And I think with a little bit of political will, I think that solution can be arrived at. But of Mm. course, that all depends on what direction the new British Prime Minister decides to go in. Well, it might might be in reach, but it doesn't seem as though she in particular is, is stretching to grab it because we heard reports from the Financial Times last week that she's preparing the ground to use Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, 10 days after she becomes Prime Minister, if that is what happens. I mean, if she goes ahead and does that, would you say that there's a rocky road ahead for the relationship? As I said to you, I think there's always... A new era starts with a new prime minister and a prime minister has authority when they achieve office and they can move in different directions. I hope she doesn't get trapped too much by what she said uh, in the past. But I do think whatever happens on the day she becomes or he or she becomes prime minister, there is a new era begins. It's a new prime minister who has authority and is able to then make judgments. I hope the judgments that will be made will be pragmatic judgments rather than judgments driven by ideological considerations Mm. to do with Brexit. Daniel Mulhall from today with Claire Byrne. And on the live line, Claire Farrell called Joe about the horrific attack on her elderly mother Una last week. Claire Farrell, your mother Una and your two uncles were held up, attacked 4am in the morning. 
um, tied up, unfortunately, in their house. Claire, Claire Farrell, good afternoon. Yeah, good afternoon, Joe. And how um, is how is Una Farrell? Yeah, my mum is doing very well. Um, she's uh, coping and uh, getting over the trauma as best she can at the moment. And today is a special day. And today is a special day, and she probably would like me to say that she really appreciates everyone's concern and okay. their goodwill right. towards her, and that she got uh, lovely cards from everybody around the country, Brilliant. Uh, be- beautiful flowers, uh, uh, an outpouring of good wishes and goodwill towards Fantastic. her and the family. Fantastic. Absolutely lovely. So, yeah. Because yeah, she was she-, she was quick to point out last week that a number of media reports said she was 94, whereas in fact she's only 94 today. Yeah, so she's 94 okay. today, yeah. And uh, it was always a well-kept secret, but now uh, oh, everyone knows. Now, <laughs> that, now, <laughs> and how, you know the whole thing about post-traumatic, post-traumatic yeah. stress, how is she a week later, Claire? Uh, yeah, she's doing fine, you know, I mean, yeah. it comes in different it, it comes in different ways with different people. And uh, I think my mum was a person throughout her life that she always was never a victim of anything and always mm-hmm. a survivor of everything. So I think that she's of that generation. And once she can get up and do her, her work and stand behind her counter, she, fe- she feels it's a good day. And how are your two uncles? So they're doing fine. I mean, my right. other brother is back at work. I mean, the two of them are back. Shames is back tomorrow. And right. and uh, so they are. I mean, um, uh, in in my own capacity, Joe, as a person that deals with disadvantaged, uh, in the area of disadvantaged, yeah. I won't go into too much of that. But I feel that it's a, it's a societal issue as well, you know. Yeah, yeah. We, we live in a very kind of complex world now and nobody really is safe to that regard yeah. in their homes like they used to be in the past. Yeah, aggravation yeah. is a different thing. It leaves its mark. And um, But what do you do? You, yeah. pe- people cope in their minds as best they can and they get on with their lives and they have a new reality to live in. Uh, but this wasn't someone going into your shop who needed a sliced pan and couldn't pay for it. This was someone, a group of them, I think there was four of them, who pre-planned right. this for 4 a.m. in the that's, morning yeah, in a high-powered right. car. That's right. And went but for the high-value items. They sure did, and they brought very personal things belonging to mum. You know, lovely jewellery and and material Mm. things like that uh, that she would have had for her lifetime. Uh, But, I mean, what can I say about that? Um, They're material things. She she, uh, feels no malice. Claire Farrell on the live line with Joe Duffy. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.